You're listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, one of the hosts of the channel. Throughout her new book, Handyland, The Crippest Place on Earth, Elizabeth A. Wheeler uses a fictional place called Handyland as a yardstick for measuring how far American society has progressed towards social justice and how much remains to be done. In a rich array of chapters, Wheeler considers the new prominence of youth with disabilities in contemporary young adult and children's literature. From these and other sources, she derives principles for understanding social justice from the everyday experiences of adults and families with disabilities, including her own. Wheeler intersperses literary analysis with personal memoir in an effort to fashion toolkits for those whose work, ideas, and hands teach young people with disabilities, which, of course, is all of us. Today I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Wheeler about her 2019 book, Handyland, The Crippest Place on Earth, published by University of Michigan Press. Professor Wheeler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, and we appreciate the you taking the time to talk with our listeners about your new book. So before we talk about the book itself, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of English at the University of Oregon in Eugene, and I am the founder and director of the Disability Studies Minor here. Uh, disability Studies is my main field. I have two just about grown children. They'll be 20 and 18 this summer. And I have a beautiful wife named Jordan. And uh, I've recently developed a passion for snowshoeing. Oh, well, that is good to hear. That would be hard for me to master in Southern California here, but that sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, uh, you know, the, the snow is like maybe an hour, hour and 15 minutes from us. And it's wonderful during the work week to have this image of the quiet woods in my head. I like that very much. So, so what inspired you to write this book? It was having a child with a physical disability and then two children with food allergies. And I started to realize that there was this whole other world Uh, I have disabilities, but most of the ones that I need accommodations for, I have not had since childhood. And I realized that there was this whole world of families out there struggling with new diagnoses, with having young children uh, with disabilities. And it just opened up a real whole new world of, of wonderful people to me. And disability studies itself has just in some ways, put all the pieces of my family history and consciousness together that once you start seeing disability, it's everywhere. And also the reason that I wanted to write about teen and children's literature, I mean, that's been an interest of mine and I've taught it for decades, but I began to notice that you started to get these great portrayals of young people with disabilities as main characters and people with agency in their own lives starting around 1990, starting around the time of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I was intrigued to pursue those representations. Well, and you mentioned that disability studies has tended to avoid discussing children. And, And could you tell me why do you think that is? I think that 
the generation of amazing people who founded disability studies were absolutely sick of being confused with children. They were tired of being regarded as uh, sexless. They were tired of being patronized. Or, you know, if you go into a store in a wheelchair and you're with someone else, they'll talk to the someone else uh, instead of you. And I think they didn't want to perpetuate that confusion between actual children and adults with disabilities. I think also they wanted to get really far away from applied fields like special education, where it's all about what can we do for these poor young people with disabilities? Not that there isn't critical disability studies in education and so forth, but I think that there tends to be a reluctance to to be associated with um, a a sense of having things done for you or being being regarded as precious and special. Uh, And in my book, I argue that that's the wrong way to look at kids, that in fact, that kids are, are not pitiable and that they are our allies in the struggle for disability rights. And often they're the ones out in the front lines. They're the ones getting bullied. They're the ones redefining disability for their generations. And they are activists and self-advocates. And we need to be uh, bringing them into our community. It, it's interesting that you say that. Um, I, you know, I teach a class on disability and American culture. And in a week where we talk about disability and family, and there's sort of a, a special focus on children's experiences of disability or the experience of parenting with a disability or parenting children with a disability, I find that my students have a little more trouble separating out the emotional reaction to a lot of what they're reading when it's around kids. When it's around kids, it's just harder for them to keep that sort of clinical distance or to keep that um, civil rights paradigm in place when you bring kids into it. Yeah. And I think part of that is what I call the tiny Tim complex, that a child with a disability so often in a story serves as the moral barometer for someone else. So uh, Scrooge is mean to Tiny Tim equals Scrooge is a bad person. Scrooge is kind and giving to Tiny Tim means he's a good person. And I think because of that sort of trope, it, that makes it harder to look at these things without sentimentality. Yeah, I, I, I look forward to hearing more about that as we as we talk about the book. But, but before we turn to that, can you tell me about your writing process? How do you write? Where do you write? How do you start? Sure. Uh, working on the book, I had to be all business because, as you know, uh, much of our time is taking up with teaching and committee work. So I tend to need of I tended to need a full day at a time to work on the book. So get started in the morning and give myself the treat of some Netflix over lunch, and then go back upstairs and work. I tend to work at my desk because I have fibromyalgia. So I need a particular kind of very ergonomic setup for um, either typing or for uh, using the voice activated software. Although I have been known to get some amazing blazes of inspiration. Like um, I remember uh, working on a chapter 
in the back seat of the car. We were stuck in traffic. Uh, you know, we got a really good view of the eclipse a few years ago here in Oregon. And after um, our 17-year-old and my wife and I were headed back from this town, maybe 45 minutes away, and we were in this huge traffic jam trying to get back to Eugene. And I am like lying over the seat in the back seat, like having working out this big idea. I like that image. When, when the when the idea strikes, you just have to jump on it. Um, so let's talk about the book itself. So like me, your interest in disability studies is both scholarly and personal. How does this book blend those two different but overlapping perspectives? Well, it becomes the structural methodology of the book to sound professory for a minute. Um, the first section of the book is all based on stories from our lives and stories from the lives of families I interviewed about having a child with a disability in the family. And there are certain principles of navigating public space as a family with disabilities that I develop through stories and then apply them to young adult and children's literature. And I also use myself and my mother as example of fans who have um, had a particular attachment to a character uh, with a disability and how that can get personal. And I also talk about how that works for other fans out there. So listeners can't see this, but I wanted to ask you about the book's cover image. It's a, a drawing of Handyland, which you describe as this imaginary yardstick for measuring how far American society has progressed towards social justice and, and how much remains to be done. So can you tell me a little bit about that concept of Handyland and also about the image you chose to represent it for the cover? Sure. Uh, first of all, I want to point out that it's not just American, that I do look at the UK quite a bit. And also at, um, I have one chapter that talks about a disability in Ghana. Um, I'll tell you where the idea of Handyland came from. It's not my term. I have a wonderful group of women friends and all of us have kids with cerebral palsy. And uh, my friend Cindy was the first one that we met. Our boys are the same age. And she was telling me, we would often talk about what are the things that we need that would really make it fine to raise a kid with a disability. And we started talking about how this neighborhood, like it would be in a cul-de-sac and it would, there wouldn't be much traffic. Every house would have ramps in and out. There would be an accessible playground right in the center of the cul-de-sac. It would be really easy for everybody's kids to, you know, run in and out of each other's houses. There would be uh, a resource center right there with therapy and books and whatever you might need. And uh, so she was telling this uh, to a coworker, and the coworker said, Oh, Handyland. And then the coworker said, oh, I'm sorry, was that really offensive? And Cindy was laughing and said, no, it's great. And so it really came out of these ideas of really talking with other parents, other families, uh, my students at the university about, you know, what would we really like to see, like really using the civil rights and social model that there's nothing wrong with having a disability. You can function just fine if you have the cluster of supports that you need. And so the further I went along in the book, 
I could look at examples from different works of literature about what people with a broader variety of disabilities might need. What would a teenager with autism need? What would, uh, what would a, a child with OCD need? And um, another thing I was thinking about is I was thinking about kids with disabilities not like waiting for an invitation to be included, like the most obvious example would be school, but also just going out into all kinds of spaces and being able to access them freely that people don't expect them to be. So in this book, I also wrote about nature. I wrote about uh, fantasy and fandoms and, um, and, and I did write about school as well, but I was thinking about, you know, sports, all different kinds of spaces. And so I kept envisioning my book as like a theme park where you start out with these stories that take place in our little town of Eugene, Oregon. And then which I realized afterwards that I'd been thinking about Main Street USA at Disneyland. And then it branches out into these other areas like, like fantasy land and adventure land and so forth. So for the cover, I was picturing a theme park map and, and I wanted to give this feeling to the reader of welcome to Handyland. This is a place that isn't just for scholars. This is a place for families. This is a place for teachers. This is a place for anybody who is interested in this wonderful and weird world we live. And I couldn't find a picture that conveyed what I wanted. And I was at a comic con. I was at the Rose city comic con in Portland um, with uh, our 17 year old and my wife. And uh, I'm all, I'm dressed up as a, as a, um, as a steampunk uh, reverse gender joker and I'm talking to this woman who's come up to talk to me about uh, comics. And it turned out we both had an interested in, in, interest in disability comics. And, and I started saying, I'm looking for somebody to maybe commission an illustration. She said, I know exactly who, who you need. Right down there, Robin, Robin Robinson. Her real name is Robin Kaplan, but professionally, she's Robin Robinson. She's just published her first graphic novel. And she had a booth at Comic-Con. And I went down and looked at her art. And it was exactly what I wanted. It was, it had, it had kids with all kinds of skin tones and different abilities. And she was definitely somebody who did uh, children's style uh, comics illustration. And uh, she was really excited to take a commission. And, uh, and we talked a lot about the book and, so, and she put all kinds of little details in there. Like if you look carefully, there's a wheelchair accessible tree house in there and there's, you know, a school bus with a ramp and there's all kinds of little things like that. That's wonderful. It's a, it's a great image to introduce the reader to the, the handy land concept and, and sort of to, as they enter into the book about these different topics. Oh, I so, wanted to say one more thing about that. Yeah. Uh, if you look really carefully, there are restrooms in the center of it. And, um, and if you have to look very carefully, but they have both a wheelchair symbol and a, um, and an all genders restroom symbol on them. Nice. Well, and you, it also in the middle, right, there's a little sign that says intersectionality. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is something I was going to ask about later, but I, I might as well say now, you know, I think your book is really carefully attuned to issues of intersectionality and that that's clearly a really important principle for you to make sure is is being brought into con- conversations around disability. Do you want to speak a little bit about that and the choice to have that be one of the very few words that's included in that image? Yes. Uh, it is very important to me that disability studies is not white disability studies, to quote Christopher Bell. And I'm very aware if we take, for instance, the intersections between class and disability, how different our experiences are as a family because we have good jobs and good insurance. Um, Our son benefited greatly from occupational therapy when he was little. There's all kinds of things he learned to use with his hands and he to do with his hands. And he learned all kinds of workarounds from his OT. And if we had not had private insurance, he would have started many months later with OT than he did and have gotten really a, a good but very rationed services. So that's just one example. And there's also a really rich body of literature for young readers. Once you start looking for it, that, uh, that is really diverse in terms of race, in terms of gender identity and so forth. Like there's, there's a lot going on with disability in uh, Afrofuturist science fiction. And another thing that's really important about intersectionality is that it really broadens and changes your definitions of disability. If we're thinking about poverty, if we're thinking about racism, you're going to, there's going to be a lot more prominence of certain disabilities like asthma in inner cities, or you're also going to be thinking more about, about post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so, so you need to really have that broader picture, I think. Well, you've organized the book into a series of parts, and the first part concerns kids in public space. So here you discuss different spaces of early childhood, playgrounds, preschools, and public toilets. So I thought we could start with playgrounds. You write about fitting and misfitting on playgrounds. Can you tell us what that means? Well, a principle of disability studies that was one of the things that really impressed itself upon me. Tobin Siebers talked a lot about this, and so does Rosemary Garland Thompson, is that when you bring a person with a disability into a public space, it exposes that that space was designed for a certain type of body or a certain type of social interaction. And this can be outdoor natural spaces as well as the built environment. And it just shows you what the assumptions are really clearly. Like I talk in the book about um, our friend Cindy and her son Jameson and us and our son Kevin uh, going to play in the play structure at the playground at our local elementary school. And um, our boys could both walk a little bit if you held them up under the arm. So they're two. And so they want to do the same fun thing over and over and over again. And here are Cindy and Jordan, like having to walk these kids up all these steps and across the swinging bridge and up two more flights of steps to get to the slide. 
and uh, and it just became very clear that this was that, that our boys did not have the body type that that play equipment was made for. Well, in the next chapter, you you talk about your son's preschool, um, which you describe as, and I really found this term interesting. You describe it as a prosthetic community, and I'm, I'm quoting I'm quoting you here. You define that as a cluster of living beings, ideas, resources, and objects that enable the full inclusion of people with disabilities. So you, could you tell us a bit about that preschool as well as sort of how that prosthetic community contrasts to others you've experienced? Yes, and I am so glad to honor the amazing women of that preschool, uh, Gina, Karen, Diana, Janice. Uh, one thing about them was that they worked so well as a team. And that's one of those disability culture things that you have to come up with workarounds. And they would just be looking at each other and just the the communication was going back like lightning, like, okay, well, what are we going to do about this lack of access? And we're going to, you know, take this piece of plexiglass and we're going to, and we're going to Velcro something to it. And they were just amazing at that kind of, of practical skill building. This preschool was, um, it was all for kids with orthopedic impairments, but it was reverse mainstreamed. So there were also kids without disabilities uh, and within the kids with, they all had, all the kids had cerebral palsy who had an orthopedic impairment. And there was a really wide range of abilities among them. And they had everything really set up ahead of time. And when you have a young child with a physical disability, you're always coming into the room and you're, th- and, oh, and this is, it took us a year to get a wheelchair for Kevin. So in the meantime, we're doing a lot of carrying, we're doing a lot of strollers because he does not walk. And so I was always coming into a room and rearranging a person's furniture. Like if we have a play date at somebody's house, um, so, you know, I'm propping up some pillows or whatever to get him propped up so he can play. And I go to the preschool and Jan- uh, Janice, the PT, uh, just lines up a bunch of chairs, puts Kevin in different chairs, finds a chair that's the right height for him with enough back support, and then just starts building these foam pads around him. So he's perfectly stable and supported. And what does that mean? It means that he can do all kinds of things with his torso that he can't do when he's using his arms to support himself. So all of a sudden he can paint at an easel. Uh, he can he can play with Play-Doh. He can do all kinds of things. So a prosthetic community enables everybody to participate somehow. Well, and I don't think in this interview we can do full justice to the the really detailed and, and engaged conversation and, and description you offer of that preschool. So I hope listeners will read that chapter for themselves. Um, but one of the other things you mentioned is that this preschool that you have such, um, you know, gratitude to, and, and you point out so many things that they do right, they made room for this wide spectrum of abilities and disabilities. But you also know that they didn't have as wide or flexible an understanding of the gender spectrum. So what were some examples of that limited gender spectrum? Well, I think this is another case where misfitting really allows you to be an agent of recognition because my family is a queer family. And at the time that Kevin was in preschool, that was starting to become the case. Um, My wife, Jordan, used to be my husband, John, 
and was uh, around that time asking me if she could transition to female. So I was where I had not been before, where previously I had defined myself as a straight married woman, I started to become really aware of gender assumptions in a different way. And so it wasn't anything big or unusual. It's things that you would notice at most preschools, which tends to be an age where gender is really up for a family. It's the just about the point around three where kids are very proud of the fact that they figured out the difference between boys and girls. And they tend to be very, very uh, into putting things in categories at that age because they've just figured out what the social categories are. Um, and so a lot of it was in the clothes of the kids that like on Halloween, uh, there's a bunch of kids, there's a bunch of girls in ballerina costumes and a bunch of boys in sports uniforms. And it's probably even more exaggerated among the kids who could not dress themselves or express a preference of their own in dress, that it's their parents making those decisions. Um, there was a little boy in there who really, really loved to dress up little dolls and animals and so forth, but was not going to play with a toy where it was a little girl bear that you took the clothes on and off. Uh, I could tell he really wanted to play with that toy. He could play with the boy bear, but he couldn't play with the girl bear. And so I was just really aware of preschool as this place where there are a lot of expectations and the sociological research and education research back me up on that, that that's a really key time period for gender. And in terms of the families, I mean, they're the most wonderful people in the world, but they, I think that we have broadened them out a little bit. Uh, and so it's a very different situation now. Um, but at the time I was really worried about how they would react if we came out as what would essentially become a lesbian couple because they tended to be uh, members of pretty conservative churches. Uh, for instance, one of them said to me that she would never go to a church where they did same-sex marriages. I mean, she's since definitely changed her mind about that and we're still really close, but but there was some trepidation there. Yeah. Now, well, when you're writing about the same sort of time period, thinking about early childhood, you also make a strong case for the importance of toilet talk. So why is so toilet talk, why is it so crucial to the experience of asserting belonging in public space and negotiating interactions with strangers? Oh, there's a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of them is that one of the characteristics of disability culture is that we often do not go to the bathroom alone, even when we are teenagers and adults. And so part of it is just, I think there can be a lot more comfort in, in toiling as a shared activity and talking about poop and talking about bodily fluids. It's something that we are, uh, you know, kind of unfit for polite society in that way. Uh, another way that it works is that there tends to be a lot of toilet humor. And I think part of that is, is because people with visible disabilities attract a lot of attention in public and P and kind of the normate, the able-bodied world, the non-disabled world tends to ask a lot of questions that are way too intrusive and personal. 
And sometimes potty jokes can be a way of reminding us that everybody has a body, not just people whose bodies attract extra attention. So for instance, um, two friends of mine, a mom and a daughter were talking about how this woman had just come up to them and asked them a rude question. And so the mom started saying, well, geez, you know, we should have said something equally invasive and intrusive back. And her daughter says, yeah, like, when did you last poop? So there just came to be, I found a lot of examples of that in the children's literature as well, of kind of using using toilet jokes as a way to assert your sense of belonging in public space and to assert that you don't have anything to be ashamed of about how your body works. And the final thing about the importance of toilet talk is that if you're out in public, when you got to go, you got to go. You might have a choice about negotiating some forms of public space, but unless you're going to court kidney stones or stay out for only short periods of time, you're going to have to use public restrooms. And they are such a place where physical access and physical disability sometimes are not happening. If you think about the size of those koala care changing tables in restrooms, they're made for the size of a baby. They're not made for the size of a teenager or an adult. And I'm always so excited, like when I go to a pool or a rec space or some other kind of place where they have full adult size changing tables. Well, as you move on from thinking about sort of these these private intimate spaces, you in your second part, you focus on connections between disability and nature. And you start with picture books that employ human-animal comparisons. And, and I found it really interesting the way you talk about these comparisons as really double-edged swords. So I thought perhaps you could speak a bit about that. Sure. Um, yeah, I was so excited when I started developing a canon of picture books of kids with disabilities as the main characters, I was, it was, it really was impressed upon me how many of them were about kids and animal companions. And of course, that's just a very, very common trope in children's literature. And an important thing in kids' lives is their relationship to animals, both pets and wild animals and all kinds of animals. And one thing I started to notice was that in the pictures and in the stories, the animal and the child were often shown as mirroring each other. They might have the same disability. They might move in the same way. And oftentimes, these moments of of mirroring, of, of looking like each other, of moving like each other, were really the climax of the book and the solution to the problem. And I started thinking about how tricky that is because comparing people to animals historically over the centuries is one of the main forms of insults. And it's a way of insulting groups of people. And it has given license to genocide, to locking people up. And that led me to think about the notorious Peter Singer who is really the shining light of the of of animal studies and of the branch of ethics that deals with with animal liberation 
but he continues to argue publicly that he doesn't see anything wrong with killing children, with killing newborns with disabilities, because their parents have the right to expect a certain kind of child. And he often makes compare, he will often talk about how he thinks a chimpanzee has more right to life than a human child with a disability. And story, I started thinking about that too. And uh, Sonara Taylor talks about this really well. And she says, let's face it. We do, humans do move like animals. Uh, We are animals. And people with certain disabilities move more like certain animals. And it can hurt really bad if one kid says that to another in the playground. And usually the kid means to be hurtful. But if we treated animals well, it wouldn't be an insult. Like there's really nothing wrong with, you know, snorting like a pig or, you know, eating like a dog or something, except that we think of animals as lower than we are. That's a really interesting point. And and I'll sort of keeping the focus on animals and human-animal relationships. You also discuss Ali Brosh's graphic memoir, Hyperbole and a Half, uh, which depicts a, a dog owner and her two dogs, and all of them have disabilities. So what's your core argument about this book? It's a really funny book, and it's a book that really focuses on, uh, as she says in the subtitle, uh, on mayhem, and it's all about failure and strange things that happen. And so I started continuing my thinking about adults and animals who mirror each other. And in this book, the animals have some of the same disabilities that the author does. And uh, so we have, you know, we have a dog with... We have a dog with depression. We have a dog who seems to be low intellect. Um, And what I really started to get out of the humor of this book is that there is no way to control nature, that that's kind of the ecological message of the book, and that human and canine disability are part of that nature, too. Uh, In just about every chapter uh, Ali Brosh will set up a situation where she has an overly ridiculously high expectation for herself and or her dogs and everything f- fails miserably. And so to me, it's about accepting that nature is not going to do what you want. So you just have to respect it and learn to work around it. And I think that's the way to deal with disability, too. Well, and you move in the third section of the book, you start to focus on a set of 21st century novels that replicate the movements of students with disabilities into mainstream classrooms, especially following the ADA. So you say that these novels show how far we've come toward equality, as well as how far we really still need to go. So I thought perhaps could you tell us about some of these novels and what they're doing really well and areas in which they are are failing in one regard or another? Okay. Well, the novels that I look at in there, um, I talk about Face by Benjamin Zephaniah, which is a British novel. And I also look at Wonder by R.J. Palacio and Out of My Mind. Um, I can't say the author's name. Uh, it will come back to me. And, oh, and, mm, oh, and I talk about The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. And I think one of the flaws of these novels, and if I want to start about the strengths, talk about the strengths first. They really show how 
a kid with a disability has to navigate social space and what some of the obstacles are. You know, are the kids in the cafeteria going to want to eat with you if you can't close your mouth all the way and food spills out of your mouth when you're eating? Um, How are you going to deal with bullying and staring? And so for those reasons, it's probably not an, uh, an accident. There's so many books about kids entering a school with a disability for the first time or returning to the classroom after acquiring a disability. It's, it's one of the, mo- it's probably the most common trope of books in this kind of disability canon. Um, there are two problems that I see. One of them is that there's still a privileging of many types of disabilities at the expense of intellectual disability. So you have to have this kind of hero who is very, very smart, like super crip smart, not just ordinary smart, but but uh, a prodigy or a genius or an outstanding student. And they also have to be very charming and they have to be quick with a comeback. And not all kids with disabilities are verbal. Not all kids with disabilities are going to uh, get the joke right away or make the joke quite away. Uh, there are lots of kids with behavioral issues who cannot be charming to others all the time uh, and who may, in fact, you know, require a lot of patience in communication with them. And there are lots of kids with intellectual disabilities who aren't going to maybe be the, you know, the the academic star who's going to get a national merit scholarship. And there are few books that feature main characters with intellectual disabilities, and they're often jokes at their expense. And that's something I notice a lot in pop culture in general, is that if you have a story with someone with a non-intellectual disability, there may be these kind of subtle jokes about smartness and dumbness around the edges that that promote this kind of insider-outsider thing that we have to get beyond. Yeah, I really like those points. I mean, especially the you point out just how common that moment is where the individual with a disability that is not an intellectual disability makes the point, and the reader is supposed to be sort of on their side in this, makes the point like, I'm not intellectually disabled, right? You're underestimating me. That's not me. And sort of leaves out that, well, that is somebody, right? There are there are somebodies who do have those kinds of disabilities. And somehow the book has just erased them as legitimate, sympathetic, central characters with agency in their own ways. Um, our son is conventionally smart. And always did well in school, and it has uh, and was mainstream. And it was always really important to me that he saw the kids in the life skills room, uh, most of whom had intellectual disabilities, as part of our same community and part of our same spectrum of disabilities. Uh, for instance, he had uh, the 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 folks from the school district were surprised that we wanted him to have. Uh, his his physical education classes with them, and that was just one of the little ways, you know, that that we wanted to help him to understand that that he was not to use his IQ against anybody. 
Uh, you know, it's it's really interesting, and I feel like we could talk even more about those novels. There's so much in those chapters of that section. But but I also want to make sure we talk about the next part, which is where you turn to fantasy literature. And that's a favorite genre of mine. So I was especially engaged by this section. And you describe fantasy literature as, quote, a crucial realm of freedom, recognition, and solace. And there's a lot of different books that you talk about there, but I thought readers would be especially interested by your chapter on the Harry Potter series and its supernatural versions of real world disabilities. So can you talk a bit about where we can find examples of disabilities in the Potterverse and and what you see (laughs) as significant about those? Yes. And I have found that non-disabled lovers of Harry Potter often are not noticing these things at all. But adults and children who have experienced depression immediately know that the Dementors are depression metaphors. I mean, you can also read interviews with J.K. Rowling where she talks about this, but those of us who know about this can see it right away, the, the feeling of all happiness in the universe suddenly being sucked out of you, uh, only being able to remember the worst things that have ever happened to you, or this complete lack of feeling that, that people who have never experienced depression don't understand that sometimes it's not intense sadness, that sometimes it is uh, this kind of this absolute chill and the, and the deadliness of that. And I love the way that fantasy can give you these supernatural disabilities that give you really different possibilities um, for, for reimagining the world and reimagining ability in a way that realism can't. Um, another one of the, the comment, the elements that runs through the Harry Potter series that I talk about as a disability is Harry's headaches, because they sure sound like migraines to me, the way he pictures them as, uh, you know, sharp metal objects pour, uh, boring into his brain, uh, the way that he just won't be able to shake the headaches, the way that the headaches make him angry. And they, he has these headaches because the ultimate bad guy, Voldemort, um, there's a bit of Voldemort inside Harry's brain. And one of the things I think that is cool about that is that this is part of Harry's journey as a hero. This, this pain disorder is one of the things that makes him a hero rather than disqualifies him as a hero because he can sense the presence of evil in the world when the adults in power are still in complete and utter denial and in fact try to call him crazy and so forth. Another thing that you often hear about uh, if you have invisible disabilities is is being called crazy. Uh, So there are these, in both with the Dementors and the headaches, there are these very accurate, you know, could be almost clinical descriptions of these invisible conditions, but they have to do with the supernatural. And they also have the, and they have to do with, um, with heroism and acting in the world. And also they make having those disabilities feel safe because once the presence of evil is gone from the Potterverse, 
the disabilities vanish too, which kind of falls into the trope of the disabilities have to be cured, but the experiences of them for Harry are so vivid that I think that they also are an important point of connection for those of us who share these disabilities. Well, sticking within fantasy literature, your book also introduced me to the young adult Afrofuturist dystopian novel Orleans, which is set in New Orleans in the year 2056 after a bloodborne illness has led to the quarantining quarantining of the entire Gulf region. Right? And, and first of all, I was interested immediately because I really like Octavia Butler. And a lot of your descriptions of Orleans made me think about Octavia Butler's um, protagonist in the parable of the sower series, right? So immediately I knew, I, I went out and immediately got this book from the YA section of my local public library because I knew, oh, this one's for me. Um, but I wondered, you know, could you tell our listeners a bit about this novel and your take on it? Yes. And absolutely the relationship to Octavia Butler is there and there, and she really is the, the godmother of this whole new canon of young adult uh, Afrofuturist science fiction books or speculative fiction books that have come out uh, that are that are full of portrayals of disability. They're so intersectional. And it makes sense because Octavia Butler has so many supernatural disabilities in her books. So it makes sense that Sammy Schalk and uh, Terry Pickens have both written about Octavia Butler and disability studies. So Orleans in particular, it's by Sherry Smith, and she was inspired by the situation of Black communities in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And the premise of the book is that we, I think we're in the 24th century, and the idea is that there's been a whole series of hurricanes increasingly strong after Katrina, the Gulf region has been destroyed, basically, the human civilization. And as often happens, especially when you have uh, uh, unclean water sitting around, uh, there's a, a, a fever that starts to spread, a spread, an imaginary fever. And eventually the U.S. builds this quarantine wall around the Gulf region and basically just gives up on it and lets people fend for themselves. And it's a bloodborne illness that people with some blood types uh, die immediately. Uh, people with other blood types have more immunity from it. So it's talking about this kind of war of all against all of people uh, who have no access to health care, people who have no access to services, having to fight it out with each other. Um, and there, I'm increasingly excited about this whole genre because I think it has so much to say. Yeah, definitely. And, it, and it, my sense is that it's really the Afrofuturist work in general is just growing in leaps and bounds in terms of how much of it and how diverse and, and the dystopian novels in particular, I think are a really exciting space of growth. Um, so you title your conclusion Tomorrowland. What does your imagined Tomorrowland look like? And, and what do we need to do to make it real? We need this whole cluster of things that I call the prosthetic community. And in the United States, we tend to be so starry-eyed about technology 
And I want people to think about uh, information technologies, physical technologies like like um, like smart prosthetics, uh, talking computers, and so forth. I want people to remember that these technologies do not work by themselves, that they require a whole supply chain. And that includes the people who invent them. That includes uh, the people who fit them on you and make sure that they fit the people who repair them. One of the startling things about having a child in a power wheelchair is how often it falls apart. Uh, So one of the things we need is for services and supplies for people with disabilities Uh, to function the way other kinds of consumer products do. Ooh, I'm starting to get that edge to my voice. Um, And we need money. We need equal access to these things. So there are these wonderful, um, fantastic inventions, uh, like the kind of stuff that Tony Stark makes in uh, in the Marvel movies uh, that are accessible to Marvel superheroes, but not to ordinary people who don't have good access to insurance. And uh, we need for countries other than the United States to have mandated access. If you don't have laws saying people have to be able to go into public places, then you don't have access because some people do it out of the goodness of their hearts and some people don't. So you need so many things. You need laws. You need technology. You need people working together. You need brainstorming, imagination, and lots and lots of money and lots of political will. Uh, We're moving definitely in the right direction, but there's still a long way to go. And we need uh, equality in terms of the, the relationships to law enforcement, that there are just way, way, way too many young people with disabilities, particularly those on the autism spectrum uh, and, and those with behavioral disabilities particularly if they are young people of color who are getting killed by police or who end up trapped in the criminal justice system. And finally, um, one of the things that I thought, when I thought about thinking about the future, about Tomorrowland, I thought about sex. And I, so my, my uh, conclusion talks about the difference in access to one's first sexual experience being safe and being consensual and ever happening at all for young adults with disabilities, depending on um, how much support you had from your family, depending on whether or not you had a safe place to live and uh, resources to go to if something does go wrong. Well, I like what your Tomorrowland looks like, so... Thank you. I like it a lot too. Um, If readers take home only one thing from this book, what would you want it to be? It it depends a little bit on what kind of reader we have here. There was a reader I had in mind who was a non-disabled parent of a young disabled child, and they're overwhelmed. And I would like them to know that there is... A wonderful that there's nothing wrong with having a disability, and that there is a wonderful world of community out there of people who get mad about the same things and laugh about the same things. So I wanted people to know that, and I wanted 
scholars to appreciate and respect the ingenuity and ferocity of families and young people with disabilities. And I want adults with disabilities and kids with disabilities to have solidarity with each other. And finally, there's often this moment, maybe you've experienced this, where uh, a kid will point out someone with a disability and ask a parent, you know, what's wrong with them? Or, you know, why are they, why do they have that cane or whatever? Why do they look different? And often the parent will will shush the child and say, you know, it's, it's rude. Don't say anything. Let's just keep going. And I want a world where disability is not a hush-hush thing. I want my book to help people know what the current terminology is and how, if we get more comfortable with all this stuff, we can all have a good laugh together about it. Well, thank you very much, Betsy. I enjoyed your book and it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. So before we wrap up, um, what do you think your next project will be? I have a lot of ideas. I am continuing to pursue um, intersectional uh, science fiction. So I have been reading uh, Enedi Okorafor, and I've been reading Tomi Adeyemi, and I've been reading uh, lots of Nalo Hopkinson. She's a big new favorite of mine. And so I'm thinking about writing about uh, disability and race in YA speculative fiction. I am also intrigued that I am finding more intersectionality in realist books about young adults with disabilities. For instance, uh, there's a recent book out called Anger is a Gift by Mark Oshiro that is about um, a gay young man with an anxiety disorder who's a young black man living in Oakland dealing with racial profiling. Uh, So I'm interested in pursuing intersectionality. I also, something I've definitely committed to, um, I am the creative director of a local um, inclusive theater group that includes college students along with people from the community with mostly with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And there's a woman uh, who is in her 50s in the group named Dana Davis, who is the most incredible storyteller about her own life. And we've done two productions so far, and she's been a real guiding light, both in writing and in performing in both of those. So we're going to start collaborating on uh, doing more oral history with her and uh, creating a full-length play that is the story of her life. Uh, She has uh, CP and intellectual disabilities. And I'm also talking about collaborating on an open source textbook for high schools that's an introduction to disability studies because disability studies is really infiltrating the curriculum in higher education, but there, but it has hardly made a dent in K through 12. And we need to not only include kids with disabilities in schools, they need to have their culture and their history surrounding them. And we need to not have these health classes anymore that are talking about um, 
that are taking it for granted that if you had uh, a child with Down syndrome that you might consider terminating the pregnancy. We need to have more voices in there um, at, at all different levels, like contesting some of these discourses so that the young people do not have to do it for themselves. Thank you. Those all sound like valuable directions for, for future progress. So thank you again for, for talking with me today and for telling our listeners a bit about your book. Uh, uh, thank you very much for your interest in the book and in these issues. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. You've been listening to my interview with Elizabeth Wheeler about her book, Handyland, The Crippest Place on Earth.